let's open with prayer. Father, uh, we pause before you because we, um, we trust you. Today we are going to talk about idolatry, which leads to the loss of worship and fellowship with you. And Father, we confess to you that we are all guilty of idolatry. And uh, we also confess to you that we are very sorry for that. And we're very grateful for your grace, and your loving kindness, and your patience and the way you walk us through it. Thank you. Thank you for, for being our God, for loving us so deeply, and for walking along that road very patiently with us. So help us today as we look into this, this wonderful word that you've given us and uh, make even more sense out of why your son came and had to come. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in a series called uh, What Went Wrong? Advent starts in about three weeks. It starts on the 14th, I believe, with uh, Ash Wednesday. If you've not been to Ash Wednesday or Monday, Thursday or Good Friday, that's all part of the Lent season, I'd like to invite you to come. Ash Wednesday is about 30 minutes long. It's very reflective. We do celebrate communion and ashes together. And, um, and l- let me invite you to come. It's a time where we pause throughout the year and just think deeply about the Lord and ourselves. The purpose of Lent is to focus on the cross and what is going on with the cross. So we did this series, we came up with this series, What Went Wrong, to prepare us to focus more on the cross. We've been taught, many of us, to look at the cross from a very personal, very individualistic perspective. I sin, and I need Jesus to redeem me. That's all true. Don't ever hear what I'm not saying. That's all true. But the Bible presents a much, much bigger picture than that. We started this discussion uh, last week, actually. So what actually happened that required the cross? And why the cross? Why resurrection? Why? What we want to do is we want to ask the questions that the New New Testament authors asked. We want to see the things that they saw that we should stop and take a look at. For us, for many of us, it's, uh, and I don't mean this negatively, but it's, it's just kind of an average normal thing to be a Christian. Many of you were raised in Christian homes. And so it's hard to capture the excitement that these first century Christians felt. The absolute despondency and discouragement when who they thought was the Messiah died on the cross. An absolute statement of failure. And then three days later when he rose from the dead, when that happened, Jesus redefined all of world history. He redefined all of redemptive history, and he put the, uh, the first century Christians into a mental tailspin. They could not make sense of it, because he basically defied all of their, all of their ideas, their longings, their hopes of what was about to happen. The Old Testament leaves us hanging with several questions, and those are what we're talking about, what went wrong. And so there was a lot of literature being written, a lot of discussion occurring up to the time of Christ about how to answer these questions. For example, we'll come back to this. The uh, Israel was sent into exile. That was the punishment described in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. If they sinned, and they did. God brought them back into the land. 
But the glory of the Lord never reappeared in the temple. So they knew they were still in exile. They may physically be back where they belong, but God was not present. That's still exile. And they didn't know why. And so there's a lot of writings around the time of Christ where everybody is trying to make sense of this and answer these big questions. Uh, And no one, no one, no one anticipated Jesus and the answer that he brought and the way he brought it. So he defied all of the writings of the time and answered the questions very differently than anybody expected. The first century Christians, the early part of Acts, describes it. And we read it as history, but the truth is it was a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion trying to sort this out. Um, that's why the Gospels, they didn't start writing the Gospels until about 30 years after Christ died. They had to think about it. A lot of discussion. A lot of sorting it out before they finally sat down and said, okay, let's write what actually happened and what that means. So there was a lot of discussion going on, and that happened for several hundred years in the church as they began to sort out the whole doctrine of, say, the Trinity, um, all of those kinds of things, the doctrine of atonement, the deity of Christ. How could, how could Jesus worship God and claim to be God? That's, a, that's an illogical uh, fallacy. How could that be? And they had to make sense of that. And so the, the first several hundred years of the church were filled with lots of discussion, scratching your heads, trying to make sense of it as they began to narrow down the doctrines which we hold to today. And if you read all the church councils, what you'll find is that there's a lot of stuff that they discussed and came up with that we don't agree with today that a later church council overturned. But what actually survived through that thread, that stream of communication, are the core doctrines that are written down now as our doctrinal statements. And so what we want to do to prepare you for Lent, to really help you understand the cross, is to answer the questions, I mean to ask the questions that the Old Testament asked and left hanging. Big question mark at the end. They had no idea what the answer was going to be. So last week we talked about uh, the loss of vocation, the corruption of vocation. What did God make us for? He made us to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all of creation. And we learned the fact that he brought a woman and a man together, that that means more than simply animals. It means all of creation, including each other. And so when he talks about uh, it's not good for the man to be alone and he made a helper, that word helper is not a bad term. It's a beautiful term. That term, other than here, is used of God all throughout the Old Testament. God is called the helper of Israel. And we learned what that word means is that Israel is incomplete and they need God to step in to complete what is lacking. And that's what happens in a marriage, is that the husband... God made the husband incomplete so that he could create a woman to complete the picture. And it's a picture of a perfect relationship together, working in partnership. And so then he gives them the the commands to oversee everything. That's our vocation. We are to care for all of creation. And I argued last week that we began to corrupt that and we began to lose that. And uh, we lost our vocation. So we use a lot of technical language. We bantered about in the church. Uh, everybody's familiar with the image, the idea, for example, of we're being transformed into the image of Christ. Okay? But what does that really mean? What's that really mean? Scholars are really good at coming up with language. 
that we use all the time and a lot of us don't really understand. What does that mean? What that means is Christ is the perfect human in every respect. Fully God, fully human. He is the perfect human. And as we over our lives are being transformed into his image, we are being transformed into true humanity. All of the reformers wrestled with the concept of the law. What did we lose at the fall? And, and how does that get restored? How do those capacities get built back into us? For instance, as we move toward Christ, we love him more. And we love each other more. We express more gratitude, more generosity, more graciousness, patience as we move toward Christ. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ, to be transformed into our true humanity. That's what that really means, is that we move toward Christ, we're becoming more and more human. So what I want to wrestle with today, though, is what happened where that was needed? What happened with the loss of vocation? Um, and so we're going to talk about the loss of worship. That's how I title it. I could have titled it the increase in idolatry. It would have been the same thing. Two sides of the same coin. When you start loving somebody other than God, you stop worshiping God. And they go together. So I want to talk about that. We have often reduced Christianity down. I alluded to this a minute ago. Into the simple formula, we need sin. Uh, we sin and therefore we need Jesus to get us to heaven. And I argued last week, that's true. But that leads us to a very pagan approach developed by Plato, an escapist mentality. Everything will be just grand when we finally die and get to heaven. The problem is that the Bible, that doesn't, that doesn't injustice to the Bible. The Bible is far more rich than that and far bigger than that as it describes the problem. Yes, your individual sin is important, but not as important as the bigger problem of what God wants to do in all of creation. It really is not, here's Jim and here's the universe. That's really not it. We fit within a much larger story. And the better you understand that story, then the, uh, uh, the more valuable the cross and the resurrection will be. So I asked the question, what if sin is much more than simply breaking a moral code? That's true, but what if it's far bigger and deeper than that and more destructive? And what if God has much more in store for our eternal destiny than simply dying and go to heaven? I asked the question last week, where does the Bible say that? Every time we see the word heaven, heavens, the word heaven, you know what that means? The word heavens in both Hebrew and Greek? It just means sky. That's all it means. Okay? Heaven is God's domain. Earth is our domain. And when God brings them together in the new heavens and the new earth, God comes to live with us. That's what that means. So the separation between heaven and earth is eliminated and it's all brought together and we live on the earth. Or as Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So last week I argued that sin leads to two very devastating results. Number one is it distorts or corrupts our genuine humanness, which is our true vocation. Let us make humans in our image so that for the purpose of Genesis 1.26, they may steward all of creation. That's our purpose, which includes each other. It includes the animals. 
Proverbs, a godly person cares for their animals. That's why as Christians, we should be very concerned about both culture care and creation care. Environmentalism should be part of our thinking because God gave us this earth as a gift. So the first thing it does is it distorts or corrupts our genuine humanness, which is our true vocation. But the second destructive thing it does is that it, it, it leads us to idolatry, which leads us away from the one true living God and therefore the loss of true worship. You can worship God or you can worship idols, but you can't do both. Okay? And so the question is, how did that happen? And Paul answers that question in Romans 1. I'm going to read to you Romans 1. You're welcome to follow along if you'd like to. Romans 1, verses 22 and 23. I'm going to pick out two verses, and then I'm going to come back in a little bit and put it in its bigger context. Because Romans is a passage that is used very destructively in the church today. For example, Romans is the one passage that we lift out. Romans 1, the whole passage of sexual orientation and homosexuality, and we use it in a way that's very harmful. And I want to put it in the back so you can see what Paul is arguing. So here's Romans 1, 22 and 23. Although they claim to be wise, that's talking about all of humanity, that's including you, by the way, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, I'm going to read parts of Genesis. You're welcome to follow along, but I'm going to read parts of Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28. I'm going to listen to that, and then I'm going to connect them together so you can see how Paul built his argument. Here's Genesis 1. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, here's our purpose, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, he says to these humans. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. After God did this, says he sat back and he looked at all of his creation and said, this is very good. It's perfect. Just the way it's supposed to be. I'm here and I create all of this. And then the last thing I make is humans so that they can reflect my goodness out to this creation And I get to watch them. That's the mirror image that John Calvin used. We reflect the glory or the goodness of God out. And I get to watch humans as a mirror reflect all the praise of creation back. This is very good. And then the fall. Then the fall. So when Paul writes Romans 1, 22 to 23, listen to the connection. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Pause. Paul's Bible, his Old Testament, New Testament hadn't been written, by the way. So the first century Christians, all they had was, were the Jewish scriptures. And so the, he, uh, the Old Testament was written in both Hebrew and some Aramaic. But they translated it into Greek about 200 years before Christ. That's called the Septuagint. So we have the Old Testament in Greek. That was Paul's Bible. 
That was actually the common Bible used in the Roman Empire because that's what people spoke were Greek. It's like you all use English Bibles. You don't use Greek and Hebrew, do you? People ask me, what translation do I use? And I use Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> it's just the way I'm trained and wired. You use English because you don't read Greek and, and Hebrew. And so Paul used the Greek version of the Old Testament. So these words tie exact to his words in Romans 1. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. What did God say in Genesis 1? Let us make humanity in our image. Okay? Image is a very important part of creation. God wanted to make us in his image. So how, how did we exchange these images? The first one, as he says, images made to look like a mortal human being. That's the same word as mankind in Genesis 1. So instead of us being the image of God reflecting to creation, we create humans as an image to worship. You still see that all over the Middle East, Asia, Africa. You still see statues that they worship of humans. Humans. It's an amazing thing how they do that. You walk into the great temple, Madurai Hindu temple, and there's a place where the women come to find out if they're going to have, uh, give birth. And they, there's a picture, sorry to be so graphic, but there's a picture, there's a statue of a woman with many breasts and her legs are spread and there's a baby coming out. And she throws butter at it, a butter pallet. And if the butter sticks, she's going to get pregnant. It's how they discern the will of the gods. They're worshiping a, a human form. But he didn't stop there. Another image. Birds. We exchange the image of the glory of God for an image like a bird. And what did he say in Genesis? He wants us to rule over the birds. And then he says in the command, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Another way we exchange the glory of God for an image is animals. The word used in Romans 1, 23, animals. That is the word for livestock. He created livestock all over the earth for us to care for and manage. And finally, he says, we exchange the glory of God for reptiles. He repeats that twice in Genesis 1. That's called livestock. And in fact, three times, livestock. Early on, he created livestock. And at the end, we're to, uh, I'm sorry, creatures. We're to, we're to watch over the creatures that move along the ground. That's the word for reptiles. He says it twice. So what we did was we took all the pieces of creation and we began to worship them. We made them idols is what we did. We made them idols. And so we're beginning to learn what idolatry really is about. As you can see, I hope if I described it well, the language of creation in Genesis 1 is the source of Paul's argument in Romans 1 of what we did. This is how we moved away from the true living God. His main point in Romans 1 is that people abandoned creation by turning away from creator God to idolatry, to worshiping everything in creation. So now we can understand the context of Romans 1. Listen to the context of Romans 1 and quit misusing it. If you're going to use it at all, put yourself in the story. Because I'm about to do that for you. Because I know you need help. 
Listen to Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what be, may be known about God is plain to them because he has made it plain to them. I've argued all along that creation serves two purposes, for us to enjoy and for us to learn about this true God. We learn that he is bigger than us. That's what it's designed to teach us. He's made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. They can clearly understood from creation so that everyone is without excuse. There is no statistical advantage to being born in America. Don't be fooled. Every human, every human is without excuse. And God is merciful and is pursuing every human on the planet. And any human anywhere on the planet that turns to God will find God. That language is used throughout the Old Testament. If you search for me, I will be found by you. That's a picture. Hebrew is very pictorial. God says, I see you coming down the road looking for me. I'm going to plop myself right in the middle of the road and you will find me. There's no statistical advantage to being born in our country. Every human has the same opportunity. God will figure it out. But then he goes on. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking, uh, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, and this is the verse I read to you, for images to made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God said, you want it? You got it give you freedom. He gave them over. It's the first of three times we're told this. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Did you see that? They knew the truth. Every human does. And they exchanged that truth for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, God himself, who is forever praised. Amen. So because of this, God said, you want it? You got it. He gave them over. There's a second time to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And this is the verse the church lifts out in the question of sexual orientation. Okay? And uses it by itself. But watch what happens. It gets worse. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves as the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God said, fine. You want it? You got it. There's the third time. He gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what not, not to be done. This is the descent into hell. This passage. Every statement gets worse and worse. He uses sexual orientation as an example to get to the truth 
about us. And here it is. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed. Ooh, I just caught some of you. Do you look at your possessions as God gave me stuff specifically to enjoy it and to bless others with it? Or do you think, ooh, it's mine? I got to protect it. Do you think, praise Jesus for the new tax reform act because our taxes are lower, I have more money to spend? Or do you think, ooh, I have more money to give away? One of the things I challenge my students at the master's level and the doctoral level at Denver Seminary is to ask yourself the question every year, when is enough enough? When you answer the question, when is enough enough, everything above that goes to somebody else. When is enough enough? If you don't answer that question, you're guilty of greed. Because you're doing more and more. When is enough enough? That's just greed. Depravity. They're full of envy, murder. Ooh, that just got all of you. Captured all of you. Jesus said if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder. So using Jesus' definition, I just nailed all of you. Murder. Strife. Deceit. Oh, deceit. Anybody in here guilty of just adjusting the truth just enough that it benefits you but you won't get caught? Anybody in here? I see one hand. The rest of you are liars. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, right? That's us. We've descended into what's called total depravity. That's deceit. Malice, gossips, slander. You ever talk about somebody in a non about somebody, not to somebody, about somebody in a discouraging way? God haters, insolent, arrogant. Any arrogant people in here? Okay, good, there's two of us. Whew. Thanks, Ron. We'll start the uh, arrogant club. Arrogant, boastful. You ever boast? You see, this is a descent. We pick out one sin at the expense of all the others. This is the bucket of sins that describe what you're like as idolaters. Every one of you. Everyone, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. You can read the rest of Romans. The context argues that sin leads to idolatry, which leads to a loss of vocation, our true humanity. We corrupt our own souls when we do this. Now we can have a definition of idolatry. Anything, and it doesn't matter what it is, anything that directs our attention away from God. Anything. Now, in the ancient world, idolatry was pretty much exclusively seen as the worship of icons or images, and that's still true in much of the world today. But Paul is arguing here that it is much more invasive than that. Every one of you is an idolater. Get used to it. Every one of you. Idolatry is when you have anything at all 
that leads you away from worship of the one true God. That's idolatry. You see, Romans is not about your individual sin. I hear pastor after pastor, church after church, using Romans to beat people over the head. That's not what it's about. There's a little section that talks about that. Romans is about the far bigger picture, the challenge that God faces, that he promises to bless all the nations of the world, and we screwed it up. That's the issue. It's not about your sin. It's far bigger than that. It is so pervasive in our lives that we don't even recognize it. Every one of us. You get angry, you feel justified. You collect a little more money and you feel justified. You talk about somebody else, you feel justified. It's so natural to us like breathing, we don't even recognize that we're guilty of idolatry. And what Paul is doing is showing that idolatry is not about an icon sitting on a stage. Idolatry is about what happens in each of your hearts. And you're all guilty of that. So the promise to Abraham is the key to understanding all of this dilemma. Because God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless all of the nations and therefore all of creation through you. You see, what was supposed to happen was that the goodness of God would flow through us to each other. That's why we're called priests. So I recall priests. I read that last week, Exodus 19. I will make you a kingdom of priests. Priests mediate. That's what we do. We mediate on God's behalf for the sake of others. A priest does three things. Introduces God to people and creation. Introduces people and creation to God and blesses the people. That's what a priest does. Some of you that come from higher church traditions... Anglican, Catholic, you understand that priest, even if it doesn't fit that mold, you understand the concept. Others of us that don't come, we come from a lower church environment, Baptist, Bible church, we're afraid of it because of what the Roman Catholic Church did. We don't want anything to do with priesthood. Our natural tendency is to shy away from it. But the reality is we are priests to God. We are God's priests in a creation that has broken and fallen. That is our job. That is our vocation, to love the people around us and to quit making excuses. Well, I was justified in being angry. No, you are not. You're never justified in that. I'm justified in accumulating wealth. No, you're not. I'm justified in talking about somebody else. No, you're not. Quit making excuses. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 1. And so Romans 1 is talking about the massive invasive, pervasive, universal problem of humanity that God had to solve. How in the world does he get us back to his grace flowing through us out into the world to the nations? How does that happen? That's the question that's being asked of the cross. By the way, when you go through the Old Testament, you find numerous said he's not abandoned his plan. He should have. Except for his love for us, he should have. There's nothing in us that commends us to God. Nothing. Zero. It is only based on the love of God 
that he says, I'm going to rescue you, a wrecked human creature, and bring about redemption and atonement. So you have all kinds of passages through the prophets. God has not abandoned his plan. He didn't tell us in the Old Testament how he's going to solve the plan. That doesn't happen. You have to wait till the New Testament. Welcome to Lent. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us. Thank you that even though we, as we read the Old Testament, we see we're heading in the wrong direction. And yet we also see right alongside that the promise that you have not forgotten us. You've not abandoned your plan. Thank you for grace. We admit to you, Lord, that as we understand the truth about us, we admit to you that you would have been very right to abandon us, and you didn't. And all we can say is thank you because we are grateful. In your son's name, amen. Second, you get to be generous like God is.